Well, good morning, church. Um, I am very pleased to be able to uh, share with you guys this morning. And um, it's been a while since I've uh, had the opportunity to teach. So um, I'm happy to be here this morning. And um, as we continue our, uh, our series in Hosea, um, we're going to be in chapter 4 today. And chapter 4 marks um, kind of a change of tone, in a way, for the book of Hosea. Um, the first three chapters, we could look at those as kind of a prelude in a way to everything that follows. Um, we get the, the bird's eye view, so to speak, of uh, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and where they're at and their situation. Um, we get from uh, Hosea's right, uh, relationship to his wife, uh, Gomer. We get the picture of God's relationship to his people, Israel. Um, we see his wife's unfaithfulness, and, um, and despite her unfaithfulness, we see his faithfulness to her, his continued steadfast love for her, and the same is with God and his people. Uh, we see their failure, their unfaithfulness, but there's judgment. But then also, we saw from chapter 3 last week that there's going to be a future restoration, that God is unmoving, he's always going to be who he is, his love will never change, and he will always remain faithful and one day he is going to restore his people. So we ended last week with, I guess on a good note in a, in a way. I mean, we're, we're uplifted, we're encouraged to know that there's going to be a restoration to come. But then as we start chapter 4, the tone changes because we no longer have this introduction of the bird's eye view. Now we're going to zero in and come down to the level of, um, I guess, the depravity. We know that Israel's been unfaithful. We know that they've been wavered. We know that, that they've been adulterers and they've left their, their love for the Lord. We know that, but today we're going to get into the specifics. The Lord is going to begin laying down his charges against the nation of Israel in much more detail. And it's not entirely easy. It's not entirely easy to read and it's certainly not entirely easy to teach. But it is very important as we look at this text this morning to look at it in, in a way of, of God being just, him being righteous, and him judging the sin that's in his people in an effort to correct them um, as we begin to walk through this. So in chapter 4, verse 1, you see it almost as a courtroom scene. You have Hosea stepping up as you know, the, the prosecuting attorney for the state, the state being God, and he begins his opening statement in Verse 1, he says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. So he's drawing their attention. He says, you do well to pay attention to what is about to be said. And his opening statement follows with, for the Lord has a controversy or a case with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea are taken away. And in his opening statement, much like in a courtroom, he just lays out quickly the charges against them. And he says here, he says that there's no knowledge of God, there's no faithfulness. Therefore, there's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. Those six things come straight out of the Ten Commandments. You could look at Exodus 20 and coming right out of those Ten Commandments, God's law for his people, you see them breaking it. 
And then the fallout from that, you can look at Leviticus 26, the land mourns. Rightly so, because of their failure and their unfaithfulness to uphold God's law, the land itself mourns and everything in it is in languish because of what they've done. And he sets up this picture once again that you are unfaithful. Here's specifically how you're unfaithful and what you're doing. And as we walk through this chapter, there's three sections that we could take it in. One being this opening statement and then a section of charges and then a warning to the nation of Judah. So in verse 4, you have him now beginning his charges to specifically the priests. So we'll read through this together real quickly. So, yet let no one contend and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. So what God is saying here is, he said, let no one contend, let no one accuse. He says, you priests have failed in such a way to teach people my law, adultery, sinfulness, murder, lying, stealing, all these things are taking place across the nation, but yet people in that naturally are probably suing one another, they're bringing one another to court, but they're bringing one another to the very people that are leading them to that place. And God says, no more. He says, we're not gonna do that anymore. You're not gonna any longer judge the nation. I'm going to be now the accuser of what is happening. And then you see the collapse of the priesthood. You've rejected my law, he says. There's no knowledge of God. Therefore, you're removed. And then in verse 7, he says, The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. And it's interesting to me if you noticed the change from 6 to 7. He's in six, 4 through 6, he says that you, he's speaking to the priest. But in 7, now he says, the more they increase. It's almost as if Hosea, to me, he's turning from speaking to the defendant now he's looking at, say, a jury panel, and he's talking about them. And he says, the more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They're greedy for their iniquity. In this system, under the law, people, whenever they would sin, they would bring an offering or sacrifice to the priest. And the priests were the ones, they would take that sacrifice, and they would place it on the altar. But they would hold a portion of that sacrifice for themselves, to feed themselves and to feed their, fam their families. But what Hosea is saying here, they've got to a point where the priests are no longer teaching the law. They're not leading people rightly. They're actually teaching people how to sin better because the more people sin, they're greedy for that. The more people sin, the more they bring sacrifices. The more sacrifices they bring, the fatter and richer the priests get. And he says, and it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. And they shall eat and not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. He says, I'm going to end it. You're gonna continue on your prostitution. You're gonna continue on in your adultery, but you're not gonna have children. Your line is stopping. I'm going to end it. And then verse 12, he shifts his attention from the priest now to the people. He says, my people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. And we can look at this and think, this is absurd. 
They're inquiring of a piece of wood, but in some ways, how can you blame them? If the priests who are supposed to be teaching them the law are not teaching them the law, but leading them further into their sin, and they don't know where to go. They don't know who to ask, so instead they inquire of a piece of wood. Their walking staff gives them oracles. And that day, a a diviner's rod would be a staff or a walking stick, and on one side would be smooth, and the other side would be uh, rough. And what they would do is they would throw this in the air and however, whatever side landed up was where, how they would go. It's, it's akin to flipping a quarter and then heads or tails to decide by chance what you should do. But the difference with them is they would inquire of that, but they would toss this up in the air and they would pray to the bell and they would ask him, where would you have me go? Instead of asking God and inquiring of the Lord. And he says, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. They have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Here he says, he says they, 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 they operate under cult prostitution. They go and, and lay with one another. They do sexual sacrifices with one another. But he's saying here they go to these trees, the oak, poplar, and terebinth because the shade is good. Because the shade is good under these trees, they go and lay with one another continually. He says, therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. He says, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. He says, a people without understanding shall come to ruin. But he says, I'm not going to punish your daughters and your wives because men, you're doing the very same things. It's, I mean, how, how would they know different? If you're doing this, this is what they see, this is what they know, this is what they're going to do. So all are going to come to ruin because of it. And then the last section in 15 is the warning to the nation of Judah. He says, though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Bethaven, and swear not as the Lord lives like a stubborn heifer. Israel is stubborn. It says they are a young cow that does not obey its master. It just goes where it wants to and it does not listen. And then he says, can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? And the answer is no. But the idea is they become so stubborn, they've now wandered off into a place in a broad pasture like a lamb. But a lamb in a broad pasture is unprotected. It's weak, it's feeble, and it's broad. There's no way the shepherd can protect him there, but the lamb has gone where it wants to because he believes that the grass is greener on the other side. And God says, I can no longer protect you there. You have gone outside of my pasture and where I can feed you because of your stubbornness. And then in 17, he says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Lead him, leave him alone. When their drink is gone, give them... The, they give themselves to whoring, and their rulers, uh, their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So, man, that's <laughs> that is tough to read. There's a lot in there that raises questions. Um, there's a lot of questions that you may have that we don't have time this morning to expound on. But I would encourage you um, to go to stonepointchurch.com forward slash Hosea. And you can see devotionals, our staff devotionals that go out during the week. There is some really good insight on this chapter from just this week. If you're not signed up for that, you can go there and do that. But this morning, what I want us to do is I want to come away with two things. 
there are two themes that run through this chapter that I think if we grab a hold of now, that we would be better for it, that we could, we could begin to change the direction of not, not our nation. Ultimately, yes, but we don't need to start there. We need to start at our community. We don't need, before our community, we need to start with our family. And for our family, we need to start with ourselves. So if we begin with ourselves and we grab hold of these two things, we can begin to see change in the world around us. But first, I want to ask you this. Have you ever been driving down a road? Um, you know, a nice spring day. It's, it's, it's not hot yet like it is now in Texas. And it's just wonderful weather. You've got the windows rolled down. You've got the radio up. You've got the wind blowing through your hair. Give me an amen if you get the song reference. But you're driving down the road, and, and all is right in the world. I mean, you just you feel great, and you're just cruising, right? Your foot's getting heavy, and you're just rolling down the road. Now, my question for you is, in that moment, at that time when you're doing that, what do you know? There yet, what do you, what do you know that you're not thinking about? It just feels so good. Everything's right in the world. You know something that you're not thinking about, and that is the speed limit. And along the way, you're just going, you begin to realize possibly that you don't even know what the speed limit is. But it feels so good to just be going the way you are. Cruise control set. You don't even slow down to take a minute to realize what the speed limit actually is to come under it. That's the idea. That's where Israel is at right now is they're in a place where they're cruising. They're cruising down the road. They know that there's a God. They know that there's a law, but they don't know what it says. They don't know what it is. And in their ignorance, it feels too good to continue driving. And that's the first thing that I want us to come away with today is knowledge or the lack thereof. If you have a pen or a highlighter, there's a few things that I want you to mark right now. If you go to chapter four, verse one, he says, there's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Highlight that. In verse 6a, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 6b, because you have rejected knowledge. 6c, and since you have forgotten the law, you can mark those. And then verse 11, whoredom wine, new wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. You can mark which take away the understanding. And then finally, at the end of verse 14, a people without understanding will come to ruin. Six times in these 14 verses, as he lays out his charges against the nation of Israel, the theme that runs through it is a lack of knowledge. They don't know what they don't know. And they don't know because of the priests. The priests are the ones that should be teaching them the law. And God begins with the priests. You are the teachers. You're going to be held to a different standard. And he rebukes them and he casts them out and says, you're no longer going to do this because you're not teaching. You have rejected the law. So when it comes to people committing sin or, or doing something wrong, in many ways they're doing it because they don't know better. But here they should know better, but they're not being taught better. Right? So it shouldn't be shocking that they're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery because they don't know these things. They know of the Ten Commandments, they know of the law, but they don't know what it says or what to do about it because they're not being taught in it. And it comes all the way down, a lack of leadership comes all the way down to the household where men, fathers and husbands, are not leading because they don't know 
and they're leading their own daughters and wives into the same adultery and prostitution that they are engaged in because they do not know. But just the same as us, if we're driving down the road and it just feels good on that wonderful day and we're just cruising and we're speeding, we don't even know what the speed limit is, but we keep on going, but we're completely unaware that there is a trooper right up the way and we are on his radar and when we get there, we're gonna get pulled over and we're gonna get a ticket because there is a penalty for the breaking of the law every single time. But when that happens, ignorance will not be an excuse for your decision to continue on. It will not be an excuse. It's not an excuse for them. It will not be an excuse for us. But in verse 17, Hosea says this to Judah. Judah is not in this situation completely. They're not perfect, but they're not to this extent. And he tells them in verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols. He says, leave him alone. He tells them, don't, don't be like them. Don't be like the culture around you. Don't even go up to Gilgal. Don't go to Bethaven. Don't swear as the Lord lives. Do not do these things. Don't go there. Don't say them. Have nothing to do with them because they're joined to idols. He says, leave them alone. And this is the message for us today. Is how much do we look like the culture that is around us? In many ways, as we begin looking at Hosea, then we look at the state of our nation right now and the turmoil and the things that are going on. There are some parallels, yes, but we can look at this and some would say we're exactly like the nation of Israel at this point in time. Well, we're not. We're in bad shape, but we're not. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love in the land, no knowledge of God whatsoever. But here, the fact that I'm here this morning and I'm teaching this to you, you're tuned in. There is a faithful people here, and it's called the church. God had a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, and they broke that covenant, so he judges them. But he remains faithful and he's going to restore them. But God does not have a covenant relationship with the United States of America. But instead, he has sent his church to be the difference in the world around them. But the problem is, is oftentimes we don't know something. We think we do, but we don't act like we do. And we look like the culture that's around us. We look and we would say, it's absurd that they would inquire of a piece of wood. Well, what do you inquire of? If you're considering selling your house or buying a house, what do you inquire of? Do you look at the market? Do you go talk to your banker? Or do you inquire of God? Do you inquire of the people of God? Do you process through that with them? If you're thinking of a job change and quitting your job, do you inquire of the Lord or his people? Or do you go to LinkedIn and see what's out there? Do you go around your boss and talk to a supplier? What do you inquire of? It's no different. In that sense, we are the same but we're not to that extent yet. But the faithful people of God are here. But does the world know that we're here? But all too often, and in our day and age right now, we, we, we struggle with, with, with what's going on. We look at the news, we see what the news says, and we look at it, and it's horrible. We get mad, and we should have a righteous indignation against the sin in this world and the brokenness in this world. But the problem is, is we take a pharisaical mindset and we look at what's wrong, instead of praying for those people, we judge and we condemn them. And on our Facebook pages, on one point, we, we, we share scripture and we praise the Lord. And the very next thing on your timeline is judgment and condemnation for our government because you don't agree with how they're doing it or someone that's got a brick in their hand throwing it through a window. But if we're not careful, 
We'll get in conversation. We'll sit behind a computer screen and we have the same brick in our hand. My plea is that even for myself, that I not be like the Pharisee that goes to the temple and throws his head, looks up to the heaven and says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector right here. But instead, we should be like the tax collector that's standing far off, his face downcast, does not even look up to heaven, and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But what is the difference in these two men? You have one man that thinks he knows God, thinks he knows it, and then you have another man that knows he's a sinner, and he needs mercy. Let us be the sinner that has received mercy, and because we've received mercy, show that same mercy to others because they need it too. That's the difference. One thinks he knows, the other knows his condition. Israel thought they knew, but they did not know their condition. And despite the warning, despite Hosea telling this, we know the end of the story that judgment does come. Even for Judah, a hundred, nearly 140 years from this point in time, Israel will succumb to the same fate. They will fall. The temple will be destroyed. They will be exiled. But the promise for them is the same, that God will restore them. But in the meantime, we have now the church age. And fast forward with me real quick to Second Peter. We recently, um, before we started Hosea, we put out devotionals on Second Peter as we walked through First and Second Peter. Now in Second Peter, 16 times throughout this letter, Peter says the word knowledge or some form of it 16 times. But in verse 2, he says this, may, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So you can mark that if you don't have it marked already, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In verse 3, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. And then verse 5, he says, um, uh, supplement, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. You can mark that there. In verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 16, for we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here you have an example of what you should know, but who made it known to you? Peter did. So you have an example here of good leadership. Peter, following the Lord, is now making known to you, to us, the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 19 and 20, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention. Hear Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, O Israel. Pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And Peter again says, don't listen to me because it's me saying it. Listen to me because you know who it is that told me to tell you. And that's the difference. That's the leadership there. But it comes down to what you know. Peter wants us to know something. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, and I think it's wonderful. He says in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us. Speaking of Israel, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
Verse 7, do not be idolaters. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Again in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age ages has come. Then verse 12, therefore, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And what's very interesting, you have Paul saying this, if you feel like you're standing firm and you've got it figured out and you know what you're doing and you know God and all this, he says, take heed lest you fall back. Peter says, or Hosea says in 4, 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Peter says in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, therefore, brothers, all the more diligent to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities of which is knowledge, you will never fall. But church, we have to look at the example. We have to look at who came before. Uh, many times, the, the, the best way that we learn oftentimes is we look at how not to do something. I mean, am I right? I mean, how, we, how do we teach our kids? They lack the understanding to know everything we know, but along the way, they learn what not to do first. And if we look to Israel, we know what not to do. And if you learn what not to do, that's before you can begin to learn what to do. The Ten Commandments all say, you shall not do this. And God gives them that first, and then he tells them what to do. And here Peter tells us to have a knowledge of God. So church, what do, you, what, what do we know? Do we know that there is God? No, there is Jesus. Hey, I know Jesus. But the knowledge of Jesus our Lord that Peter's talking about isn't just knowing of him. It's knowing him. It's the way you know your wife. It's the way you know your, your, your children. You don't just know that your daughter's your daughter because she's your daughter. You know that she's your daughter. You know you know how she acts. You know how, what makes her happy. You know what makes her sad. You know what makes her angry. You know what she likes. You know her, and you know her because you spend time with her. You talk to her. That is the knowledge of God that Peter is talking about in this, is knowing him. But knowing Jesus is how we begin to change ourselves, how we change our families, how we begin to change our community, and how we begin to change our nation. But it comes with knowing Jesus. And I'm sorry, G.I. Joe, knowing is not half the battle. Knowing is the victory. We have to know Jesus. He is the one that incites the change. And if we're not willing to do it here, behind a computer screen and on Facebook, we're not going to change any minds. We're just going to perpetuate the hate that stirs us to anger. We have to know Jesus and live in that way. So maybe you're here today and, or you're watching today and, and you're not sure what to do. You don't, you don't know. Maybe you're an unbeliever today and you, and you realize, I don't know Jesus. I know that there's a God and, and I know I've heard of this Jesus, but I don't know him, but I want to know him. I want to know what that looks like. If that's you today, go to stonepointchurch.com forward slash cc, fill out a communication card, and we want to have a conversation to introduce you and teach you and show you how you can come to know Jesus, the one that can make all the change in life. But maybe you're watching today and you're a believer and you say, I know, I know God, I know Jesus, I know I'm saved, but I also know that I've been failing. I also know that I've, I've, been, I've been messing up. Your first step is to confess that. You, if you can admit that, 
your failure, then confess that to someone. First, you confess it to God. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's your first step. Your second step is to confess to others. James 5, 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then maybe you're watching and you're like, man, I... I know, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm saved. I know, I, I know Jesus, but I don't, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what to confess right now. Psalm 139 says, 139 verse 23 and 24 says, um, says, Search me, O God. King David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. To confess, church, lately, the last several weeks, I haven't responded well. Um, I've been angry, and it has not in any way been a righteous anger. I've been in conversations. I talk to my wife about these things, but if I'm not careful in that anger and in that conversation, giving full vent to my frustration, I'm leading my wife to the very thing that would taint her heart and her anger. But the way I come to that is, is, is Psalm 139. Sometimes when I don't know, I pray and I ask, Lord, search me. If you don't know, ask. Ask the one who wants to tell you, who wants to reveal that to you. And every time I've done that, I have found I've been grievous in several different areas of my life, and it mainly centers around anger. Anger at the things surrounding this community, surrounding our nation that I have absolutely zero control over, but it stirs me to anger. And when I let it fester, when I let it sit there, it begins to twist my heart and I don't extend mercy to other people, but I will stand in my self-righteousness and God, thank you that I'm not like that guy. But when I pray that and I ask God, search me, know me, reveal this to me, I will find that I am that guy. But God can work with that and he can lead out of that. So what do you know, church? In the end, in the end, ignorance is not going to be an excuse for the penalty that is owed. It's simply not. But who do you know and how are you leading with that knowledge? In two weeks' time, when we come back to this building, let's, let's not come back just because the pasture's open. Let's not come back as a stubborn heifer. It's my prayer that we come back as faithful sheep who know their shepherd's voice and are ready to follow. I love you, church. I'm glad that you're with us, and I cannot wait to see you in person. Lord, I love you. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for enduring the unfaithfulness of your people, Lord, so that you could set up an example for us today. I thank you for your faithfulness to restore your people. I thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord, that we have the promise of the new covenant with you. Lord, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, Lord. That we can know you, and if knowing you and abiding with you, Lord, you do mighty works through us. You give us gifts that are to be used for the building up of the church, for the building up of people. God, you didn't leave us broken, cast down, crying out for mercy, Lord. You gave us that mercy. 
so that we could rise, stand in newness of life. And then you've commissioned us, God, to go and spread that same word, to introduce the world to the one that can change their life so that they can know you and in that knowledge lead others as well. And I pray, Lord, that in the next few weeks, the next few months, as we get back to some semblance of what we might call normal, Lord, I pray that we don't come back normally. I pray that we come back changed and different, shaped and molded into your likeness with a better understanding of who you are and who we are. I pray that we start with ourselves, that we don't seek to change a nation if we can't change our household. We don't seek to change our household if we can't change ourselves, Lord. And I pray that we lead well. I pray that it starts with us. We love you and we thank you. God, it is in your name that we pray. Amen.